Let's open with a prayer. Jesus, we pray that you would be with us this day and that we would consider how we are your sent people and that you would open all of us to your call upon our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I think about being sent, uh, I was actually thinking back this week to my seventh grade year. My seventh grade year, I started at a junior high school, and I decided in my seventh grade year it was time for a new chapter in my athletic career. Um, Up until that point, elementary school days, I was more focused on basketball. That was kind of more what I was about. But I had figured out living in Georgia, which is not quite as crazy as Texas with this stuff, and I mean crazy in all the best ways, about high school football. But Georgia's not far behind. And it was clear in the high school and the middle school, the junior high school where I went, that it was fine if you played basketball or ran track or swam. But if you really wanted to be on the top rung of the athletic ladder, You needed to play football. That's where the real attention was. And so wanting to show off that I belonged on the top rung of the athletic ladder, I decided as a seventh grader that I was going to go play football. Had never played before, never worn a helmet, never worn shoulder pads, but I went out in August to try out because in the backyard when I threw with my dad, I was really good. And so what I decided is, is that that would translate to a real team. So uh, we had a week of tryouts. I felt like that I did some things good. Felt like most everything else, other people were doing better. But I was shocked when the coach at the end of the week of tryouts posted the roster and depth chart for our team. And I was one of two starting wide receivers for my junior high school football team. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? So amen. So we're done. So that's, that's the story. So there's two little kind of baby little asterisks to this. The first is, is that on any football team, you need 22 players, 11 on offense, 11 on defense. We had like 24 who tried out for our team. So everybody made it. And almost everybody got a starting position. And that's if everyone was present for the game. A couple of times they weren't, and that became a lot of fun. Second thing, little asterisk to that, is that our coach had told us that in the offense we were going to run, the most worthless position that existed was wide receiver. And the reason for that is we were never going to throw the ball at any game ever. The reason for this is because we had a tailback named Michael Walker, who was bigger and stronger and faster than just about anybody else, and we had three plays that we ran. Michael Walker running left, Michael Walker running up the middle, and Michael Walker running to the right side. And it worked really, really well. Now, when you're the starting wide receiver in that kind of offense, this is what you get to do. You get to run out for the huddle, and you listen to which one of those three plays we're going to run, and then you run as fast as you can next to the sideline because you have one guy guarding you. There's another wide receiver on the other end who was the other bad player on our team. And what we would do is they would hike the ball, and that meant someone had to guard us, and it meant less defenders in the middle of the field to tackle Michael Walker. Okay? Michael Walker went on to play college football. He was, he was really, really good. So my job on every single play was when they hiked the ball was to block the guy in front of me, 
so that he couldn't make the tackle. Now, because he was the worst player on the defense and he saw the size of Michael, he didn't want to get in there and tackle him either. So blocking him was the easiest thing in the world that I just sort of had to do this in front of him, and that was what we did. And then you run back to the huddle, and you, like, if you had a Fitbit, it would have worked really, really well. You would have gotten a lot of stuff. And then you listen, and then you run back out to the sideline, and you do it again. And that's the game right there. You got to know the guy across from you really well. You talk. You got to learn, like, what food they liked and who they were dating and what schools they were kind of, you know, what like schools they were thinking about going to. I mean, it's just all this kind of stuff. You just kind of get to know, you talk and then you go, oh, sorry, I got to run back to the huddle now. And you listen, you come back out and have another question asked. This was football for me. And as I said, it worked really well because at the end of our eight game season, we qualified for the region playoffs. And that was a very cool thing because usually we had four people come to the game, all of whom were Michael Walker's parents because they knew how good he was. The rest of our parents were just like, I, I, I got something at work, I'm sure, I can't, I can't make it. So we got to travel to this regional playoff game and play in the varsity stadium big stadium. We got introduced. There was a PA announcer, which we had never had before. So I got introduced, highlighted my football career, starting wide receiver Thomas Daniel. I got to run out onto the field. Nobody knew at that point that I was only a decoy, and I got to put my blocking pose on. Uh, it was great. And so game started, and as normally happened, we were running a play for Michael Walker. And so I ran out to my spot on the field, and they called the, the, the center snap the ball, and the quarterback handed it off to Michael Walker, and I did my fake block, right? And the cornerback, the guy guarding me, goes, ooh. Now that normally meant that Michael had run over a couple of defenders on his way to getting eight or 10 yards. Unfortunately, the team we were playing qualified for the playoffs because they had a really good player too who was bigger and stronger and faster than Michael Walker. He looked like he weighed 290 pounds as a 13-year-old, okay? And his name, and I've never met this guy, but his name is etched in my memory, is Whitney Hubbard. And on this play, Whitney was a linebacker who ran into the line of scrimmage and knocked Michael down and lay him flat on the ground. And Michael had to be helped off the field, which freaked us out. Because not only had he been laid out and we had like 14 minutes left in the first quarter and we had to keep playing, but we had no play outside of handing the ball to Michael. That was anything we knew was, had just walked off the field under assistance, okay? You should have seen the look on the backup running back's face because he was going to get the ball and run into Whitney Hubbard and he's like, I don't want the ball. We're like, you, you, you got to have the ball. And none of us were volunteering to go help. I was like, hey, I got a block out here. This is a really important job. So I can't do anything. And by halftime, even though Michael had tried to come back in the game, we were getting obliterated. We were down by like 20 points. I mean, the game was essentially over. Third quarter started. We, you know, had a little, we were going to try to rally. That lasted for a play. And then we knew that we were, we were done. And by close to the end of the third quarter, it was third and long. And we were down by like 35 points. I mean, the game was over. But I still remember going back to the huddle and the play coming in is third down. And I'm sitting there. And the guy that brought the play in, his eyes were like this big, and he goes, Daniel, they're calling a pass play for you. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> what does that mean? And they're like, so you now have to become a wide receiver. Now, we only had one pass play in our book that we had never tried before and really had not practiced. But what that meant was I had to run back to where I was supposed to go, and I was supposed to, when they hiked the ball, fake my block, which everyone knew I was going to do because I'd done it a thousand times before, have a conversation with the guy, and then fake him out at when I started the conversation by running as fast as I can straight down the middle of the field to catch this surprise crossing route. And then my 
A hidden athletic ability would take over at that point, and I was going to go up the field and score a touchdown to lead us back into the game. I can still remember leaving the huddle and running, like kind of skipping like to, the, to my spot because I finally had a play. I, a coach had sent in a play for me. Never happened. Coach had sent a play for me, with me in mind. So I got there, and they hiked the ball, and our quarterback named Daniel Gagliano faked the handoff to Michael Walker, which everybody ran for, knowing because that's everything we did. And I talked to the guy in front of me for a second, and then I started running, speed of light, across the field, and Daniel Gagliano pulled the ball back from Michael Walker, faked out the entire, de- the whole defense was going on Michael Walker, and I remember being a blinding flash coming across the field as Daniel Gagliano throws the ball, and as I'm running, the ball's coming through the air, and I'm thinking, we faked the whole defense out. This is, this is the moment I'm a hidden gem about to be polished up for the recruiters and stuff. And I catch the ball, and I caught it just like I thought I could. And, and I had faked, we had faked everybody else out except for Whitney Hubbard. <clears throat> and I had like a, an eighth of a second from catching the ball before he hit me with a force that I didn't know existed in the world until that. It was like divine power striking you and just lays you flat on the ground. And, and, and he looks down at me, he's like, good catch. And you're like, oh. And I remember as I lay there, three things happening, three things. The first was, I'm never playing any sport but basketball ever again. Like this, this is terrible, whoever invented this game. The second thing I remember distinctly was the PA announcer announcing as I lay there, well, they did try to fake him out, but I think only got an inch on the play. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that's my career. Nine games, starting wide receiver, one catch for one inch. And, uh, and that's my career. But the third thing, even as I got up and had been just laid out by Whitney Hubbard, I remember going back to the huddle and thinking, I hope coach calls a play for me again. I hope I get sent out with a purpose again rather than just returning to being a decoy decoy on the side. Because it was awesome when you run out with a purpose, when you're sent out with a purpose versus when you're just being busy going through the motions. Being sent makes all the difference in the world. And I think for many of us, we feel the way I felt in that football season, which is that we are really busy and tired doing lots of things, but we're not certain we're busy with the right things. We're not certain if the real action of what life's about is happening somewhere else. We're not certain if we're really using our time or our energy or our gifts for things that really matter, or are we just busy being productive? Because those are two different things. Knowing that you are sent and have a purpose in life changes everything. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. This series entitled Sent is going to take us through the summer. It's going to take us through the end of August. And we're going to be looking in this series at the first half of the book of Acts. And in this book, we're going to see some amazing things. We're going to see the birth of the church at Pentecost. We're going to see the uh, first church and how it organized itself. We're going to see the lives of Christians and what they did under persecution. We're going to see the conversion of people, including Saul, who becomes, goes from a chief persecutor to the apostle Paul. 
We're going to see some unbelievable things over the course of the next weeks and months. But the thread that's going to tie it all together is that the way that God touches lives and changes this world is through his people being sent out. It's common, everyday, ordinary people who don't have PhDs in theology that are the ones going out. The book of Acts describes these first Christians as uneducated and ordinary men and women who were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, our world has never been the same because of individuals like that that God has sent out. Being sent versus being busy makes all the difference in the world. What does that look like for you? What does it mean to be an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to have that kind of purpose in your life every day? Because see, the story that most of us are writing is a story in our lives where we're the centerpiece, where it's about us and our plans and our dreams and our careers and our families and our vacations and our Facebook posts and our experiences that are so great. That's what human beings naturally live like. And I need to tell you that where you're the author as well as the center, central character in your own story, your story is very small. You were created for a bigger purpose than that. You were created and sent out by God to impact this world in all different kinds of ways. And it's in this series that we're going to seek to walk and pray and learn together about what that looks like. We should be living differently at the end of this series than we are today. As together we are sent into this world. Briefly, the passage that we're going to start with today is from chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I'll invite you to listen now to God's word to us all. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sights. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, in this passage of Scripture, uh, we're introduced to a couple of things that are really important. Uh, the first is, is that you see in here that the author writes to a man named Theophilus. And he talks about how in this second book, what he's going to be doing versus the first book. There's two books in the New Testament that are written by this author. The author was a physician whose name was Luke. And so the first book is a story about Jesus and the life of Jesus. It's the Gospel of Luke. In our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they get their names by who are the primary authors of them. So the Gospel according to Luke was written by this physician. And this is the second of his works which is the book of Acts. It's a story about the birth of the church and the, and the early Christian movement. 
What we see here is that in both of these books, he's um, uh, writing to a guy named Theophilus. And what we believe is that Theophilus was a wealthy Christian who wanted someone who was educated to write down a historical account of what Christianity was about. So he hires this physician, Luke, to go out and investigate and learn about Jesus and learn about the origins of the church. And this is what uh, Luke writes. He says it's an orderly account. And so this book of Acts was written by physician Luke. And it's important because he wrote this uh, 30 to 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But the book of Acts, which we're going to read here, spans for over a decade. So in all honesty, the events that we're going to read in this book could have taken place 15 or 20 years before they were actually written down. And that's important because, and we've said this before and we'll say it again, you don't have to put your intellect on the shelf to follow Jesus. That's a, that's a kind of common assumption that others would make us believe, but it's not true. This is not a fairy tale that's been written to make us feel better. Luke writes this in a way that he's saying, this is an orderly account. I want you to look into this. I have investigated this. I've looked into this. As a physician, he would have known that dead people don't come back to life. This is not just ordinary stuff that he's talking about. And he's not saying, hey, I just, you know, take my word for it. It's, it's, this is what happened. He writes in a way that he wants us to question it. He wants us to investigate it. Again, this would have been written in a time where most of the people who he's writing about would still have been alive. It would have been easy to fact check this, and he wants folks to. The reason for that is, is that he wants them to know that it's true, so he doesn't write it in a way where he says, so these people, they went into this town, and they talked about Jesus, and people became a Christian, and it was really great. What he does is he says, here are the names of the people who went. Here's the towns where they went to. Here are the people that are in charge of the towns when they were there. Here are the, the jailers that, that put them. Here are their names. Here's the temple officials that were there. Here are the dates when they about went. You can go look at this. You can check this out. You can go and see that this is trustworthy and true. I would argue that there is much that's in the New Testament that's more historically accurate than things we teach in school. And it's written and meant to be investigated in this way. Luke writes it, assuming you won't necessarily just believe it. And he wants us to go and look at it and question it and check it out for ourselves. We have to remember this timeline. But we also see in this passage, in these 11 verses, something that is incredibly important and undergirds this whole series that we're going to be in. And it's this, that the point of Christianity is not to just stamp our passports to get to heaven. I want to say that again because it's really important. And the church in many ways has at times not taught this correctly. And the assumptions of non-Christians has been that this is all we're about. That the point of Christianity is that we're just supposed to believe this stuff, and if we do, it's like a really good insurance policy, and when we die, we get to go to a better place. And now that is certainly a central part of Christianity. I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that it's not. All of us in this room are going to die one day. All of us are. And when we die, and I can just speak for myself, when I make my maker, when I meet my maker, I'm going to be calling on the name of Jesus in that moment. As Paul writes that we through our faith have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. And when I die and come to face to face with my maker, I am calling on the righteousness of Jesus. I am not going to sit there and the only other option available to us is, Lord, I think you should grade it on a curve and when you look at the world, I'm better than a lot of people. Right? That's the other option. I'm going with the righteousness of Jesus. 
And I, at no level, I'm going to say that what we're about to talk about denies any of that, because that is a central aspect to our faith, but it's not the only part of our faith. And many times we've reduced it to that. Christianity is stamping our passport so that when you die, something good happens. And what we see in this passage from the very beginning that Luke is trying to get us to see is that as much as we are to be focused on what happens up there when we die, that just as much of Christianity is meant for you and I to be participating in building the kingdom of God down here. That this world matters to God. See, when all Christianity is, is, a, is a, or religion is, is a passport to get to heaven, it basically means that what happens here doesn't matter. That is not true. God's saying that what happens in this world has value. The lives of people in this world are worthwhile. They mean something. And that you and I are not just to be called waiting to heaven. We're called to be building and participating in building the kingdom of God here and now. You'll see up here, three times this tension is pointed out in these first 11 verses. It's incredibly important we see this. First, in verse 5, Luke writes that Jesus says that we are going to be empowered with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is uh, in response to when the original apostles say, is now the time that heaven's coming? Is now the time the kingdom of God is at hand? They're asking this question. It's about heaven. Is heaven coming now? And God says, no, now is not the time. But indeed, my Holy Spirit, the living presence of God will be in this world. And friends, I hope you know this. That's true today as well. Sometimes we're too plugged in and we're moving too fast to even recognize it or pay attention to it. But God is living in this world. God is alive in your life. God is alive in our community. And God is speaking and molding and shaping. And our job is to participate and partner with God in what he's doing in this world. But God wouldn't send his spirit into the world if it didn't have value. The presence of God means that there's value here to what happens in the here and now. Secondly, He says, and you're going to be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit's here. What happens in this world matters. We want to build the kingdom of God here. And secondly, you're the ones to do it. As you heard Ludmila say in the video, there's no plan B. There's no plan B to this world becoming more just and more righteous and more full of the love and grace that comes from the Lord. There's no plan B except you and I are called to live that out, not here in these walls and we talk about it in our holy huddle churches. But we go out there into the cities. Our cities ought to look different because of the lives that you and I live. You will be my witnesses, he says. And lastly, and kind of like a humorous part in verse 11, the last verse, is that Jesus ascends up to the Father on top of this mountain and the the, uh, apostles are looking up at him and then all of a sudden these kind of two heavenly beings, maybe angels, are sitting there and they go, why are you looking up at heaven? Which the response would be because he just... Went up. I mean, it's like what you and I would be doing too. But these two people are sitting there going, no, no, you need to be not, stop looking up. It's not about what happens up there only. You've got to get going. You've got to go back to the city. You've got to go back and, and live a life that's significant and makes a difference. These three times we see in the first 11 verses that the importance of, of, of understanding our faith is about how we live in the here and now and building the kingdom of God here. You and I are to participate in that. That's what we're sent to do. So that's what I'd like you thinking about this week. That's what I'd like you praying about this week is how are you a part of that? How are you a part of being a part of a story that's bigger than yourself? Because no matter who you are, no matter what you accomplish, and no matter what vacations you go on, and no matter who your family is, if that's all that you're about, you will never find what you're looking for. You will never have 
anything other than that sense of restlessness of there's got to be something else out there. God has created you for a reason. And it's in community and together that we learn more and more of what that reason is. That's going to be the purpose of this, of this teaching series. And so as we go, I'd ask you to prayerfully consider three questions this week. Just a few questions that I'd like you to, to be thinking about as, as we seek to get our arms around this idea of being God-sent people. The first is this. Think about the difference. How would it make a difference in your life if you realize that you don't just live in Austin, but that God has sent you to Austin? How would you live differently approaching it that way? How would you live differently if God didn't just had you living in your neighborhood, but God had sent you to your neighborhood? That you don't just go to work, but that God has sent you to work. That for you seniors who we celebrated who graduating from high school, you're not just going to college, God is sending you there. How does that change something? You're not just going to college, God is sending you to college. You're not just going on vacation this summer to have this great experience that you can put on Facebook, best vacation ever. God is sending you there for a reason. Being sent changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. God has sent you. And asking the question, how and why and for what purpose, will change you forever. And you'll never look back. Amen? Amen. Let's stand as we pray, and we'll sing one last chorus before we go. Lord, we ask today that probably many of us aren't even quite certain what it means to think that you've sent us out, but open us to praying about it, open us to considering it, open us to the fullness that we exist for a reason. And I pray over the course of the next number of weeks and the next few months that we will be able to name more and more how you have, why you have sent us out into this world so that we have lives of great purpose, that we might be fully alive rather than just living for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.